0: you're listening to the psychedelic invest podcast where we speak with founders ceos investors advisors experts and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines brought to you by psychedelic invest bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now, here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jordan Euclis. He is founding partner at Key Investment Partners. We're going to talk to him about the world of psychedelics and investment, understand kind of what the landscape looks like and where are we as an industry, where are the opportunities, where are the risks, and kind of how this is likely going to play out or at least the kind of different paths that we see in terms of the world of psychedelics and and where we're going to go. Excited for this conversation, excited to kind of really kind of understand Jordan's view and hopefully some insights on where the opportunities exist within psychedelics. With that, Jordan, welcome to the program. Thanks,
2: Bruce. Really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So before we sort of dive into what's going on in psychedelics today, why don't we get to know you a little bit? Give us your background. How, you know, professionally, what were you doing? How did you get into psychedelics? Give us the story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career in traditional finance, so working in leveraged finance with GE Capital for quite a bit. Then I moved over to the buy side and joined the private equity firm partners group. But again, was working in very traditional finance, so investing in traditional upper middle market leverage buyouts, you know, very mature, <laughs> stable industries, putting a bunch of leverage on those types of deals. But it was through my work with Partners Group that I ended up moving to Denver back in, I want to say 2016 now. Okay. And so living in Denver, naturally saw the massive growth of the cannabis industry. Yep. I also met my two eventual partners of Key Investment Partners while working at that firm. And the three of us saw not only the growth of the cannabis industry, but the fact that it was very highly capital constrained due to the fact that the the substance is still federally legal and, and yeah. most traditional investors couldn't really put money behind it. Yep, And so with that thesis, we decided to break off and form key investment partners back in 2018 and historically have been hyper-focused on investing in cannabis. But naturally, I think given the evolving landscape of the psychedelics industry, the huge addressable market we see being able to serve in the long term and those similar regulatory and capital flows issues for the industry, it's been a sector that we've been keeping a close pulse on and, and view it to be a natural extension for us to start investing into as we expand past cannabis.
1: Yeah, um, I'm curious. What are you seeing in terms of similarities and differences with the cannabis market? I mean, I know we're of early in psychedelics, but what's what's your compare and contrast? Yeah, it's a great question.
2: I think it's really important for people to understand the nuances between both of them before they just say, hey, psychedelics is going to follow the same growth curve as yeah. cannabis. Let's put all our money in it. Right. I mean, there's certainly going to be great opportunities and fantastic investments in psychedelics and, and obviously, you know, naturally with investing in general, it's better to be earlier than later. Now that said, oftentimes the first movers are the ones that get burnt. They're <laughs> not necessarily the most institutional folks. So you still have to be very careful. I'd call it one big similarity and one big difference. So I think on the similarity front, it's looking like it's going to shape up very much like it did in cannabis where federal momentum is going to be somewhat slow. You're going to see movements at the state-by-state level. Yep. Now I think the a nice benefit that psychedelics may have over cannabis is actually getting some fda approved drugs sooner than cannabis Mm -hmm. in fact and so you're seeing that with some of the folks that have received breakthrough designation therapy status through the fda and you know i think once you start to see some of those treatments receive full fda approval that's going to really set off the industry like a like a rocket ship yeah i think the other big difference i'd highlight though is that psychedelics has a lot more of a biotech feel than cannabis does yep um, you know, I think with cannabis, people actually you know, make the comparison to alcohol and tobacco and think about it as much more of like a recreational type CPG type product. yeah, um versus psychedelics. I think it's possible that we get there eventually. But I think much of the progress will be made on the pharmaceutical, on the medicinal side of things. And so that's just a very different business model to have to understand, right? You know, having a company that's able to get through, three phases of FDA trials and likely having to spend several, you know, tens of millions of dollars to be able to get through it. It's just, it's just a very different process. And so before people started deploying it rapidly into psychedelics, I would just encourage them to really understand what that process looks like and, and how long that can take. Because, you know, as we all know, the government moves anything but quickly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, th- I think two really good points. Certainly what I've I've noticed is, you know, the fact that it does have a much clearer or viable FDA drug, you know, kind of path to it that cannabis has just been stuck in. Like it can't seem you know, just because kind of the nature of the kind of entourage of cannabinoids and all, all the stuff that kind of we're dealing with in cannabis. It's just it's difficult to really push through any or, or to use the FDA process there. But on the psychedelic side, I'm curious what you kind of put into the box, <laughs> into the label. Just because we're dealing, in some case, we're dealing with plant medicines, in some case, we're dealing with lab medicines. Like, I, what do you kind of define, or what do you kind of put into scope when we kind of talk about psychedelics and sort of the molecules and the the things that you would you would say classify as psychedelics?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Bruce. And you know, I do think it's it's an important question you highlight because you know we shouldn't get in such a narrow scope on you know just call it biotech companies, you know, using psilocybin or Or whatever it is, right? It it is definitely more extensive. I mean, I think when we think about psychedelics, we obviously naturally think about compounds that are currently considered schedule One substances on the Controlled Substances Act, uh, just because I think that's naturally where we've seen the most arbitrage historically because of all the uh, restrictions, those types of substances provide to funds flows. But -hmm. there's going to be a whole ancillary industry around the psychedelics industry like we've seen in cannabis. And then that's actually where we focus a lot of our investments in cannabis too. Yeah. So, you know, we're certainly looking at other opportunities, you know, I think you put like a Life Sciences that that IPO recently, you know, that group, while they do have ownership positions in a lot of plant touching companies, they also are more of like an infrastructure play. Um, You know, we've looked at, for example, opportunities uh, like Trip that have, Mm -hmm. that is more of like a meditation app that can be boosted by psychedelics, but again, doesn't technically touch the plant. So there are certainly kind of ancillary ways to play this space. And and as I'm sure you're aware as well, there's a lot of really interesting work being done with other mushrooms and fungi that don't necessarily contain psilocybin, but have... A lot of other uh, interesting compounds. So, you know, we're trying to stay smart on the whole space and, you know, we haven't deployed capital yet into the sector. Uh, Uh And I think that it's another important point I'd highlight is just we really want to get sharp and spend some, spend a couple of years really diving deep, understanding the players before we actually make a move, because that's another place where we've seen folks in cannabis
1: get burned is they just made a move too Mm -hmm. quickly and didn't fully understand the landscape. Yeah. Any other learnings from cannabis, you know, investing on the cannabis side that you're applying or planning to apply as you get into the psychedelic side?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it just comes back to really making sure that you're um, investing behind top tier management. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with psychedelics today is just the sense that it's it's still very stigmatized, right? I mean, even people who see the momentum around the industry and, and are getting involved are still, I'd say, more reluctant to even you know admit they've ever used psychedelics or you know talk about the personal benefits so that kind of thing you know and, and that that has a real impact right I mean I'll, I'll tell you even when I like when I decided to start key the first thing I told my mom was what will I tell my friends <laughs> you know and and you try to think that that doesn't impact people but but it certainly does and so I think that over time as that stigma dissolves around the psychedelics industry you'll see more and more top tier management teams coming in. But kind of back to what I was saying earlier, a lot of times the, the first movers that get into an industry aren't necessarily the most sophisticated business owners. So you really gotta be careful and make sure you're threading that needle before you invest
1: any capital behind folks. Yeah, I certainly saw that in cannabis over the last five years that I've been kind of in the space is kind of, yeah, the lack of seasoned, experienced professionals, particularly at scale, you know, as these companies start to get big at the operations, get complicated, putting in place, um, you know, both real, you know, sophisticated business strategy, operational strategy, you know, is tough. It's getting easier. I think there's, there are, you know, there is a shift kind of into the space on the cannabis side. You know, uh, what, what do you see as being the differences? I don't want to be too leading on this, (laughs) but the differences in terms of what kind of leadership we need in cannabis versus what kind of leadership we need in psychedelics?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think in psychedelics, the leadership is going to need to come much more from the clinical side of the industry. You know, and, and I think another very important difference is just the impact of both of these substances, right? I mean, cannabis, you know, if you if you take too much, if you're in a situation where you're not with someone who's taken the substance before and is there to kind of guide you through the process, you know, the worst yeah. thing that's going to happen is you're going to get too high and, you know, probably wish you were asleep, right? Like, yeah. with psychedelics, these are really powerful substances and people yeah. need to get that. I mean, that there's certainly clearly very anecdotal. And now a lot of clinical bodies of research that are showing the long-term efficacious benefits of these, of these substances. Right. But if you're using them illegally, if you're, if you're using them without, you know, a trained clinician with you to, to guide you through that experience, it it can be a very overpowering, you know, kind of scary situation. And, And so I think making sure that we're doing it in a safe way where dosage is controlled, where you're, where people are doing it with folks, who are ethical, who've had the experiences themselves and can help guide you through it is really hypercritical to making sure that, you know, the industry doesn't kind of run off course and, and we don't see another type of Timothy Leary type situation where you yeah. know, people are taking it willy nilly and not understanding what's <laughs> happening. And, and, you know, you, you, you get some negative actions that happen as a result. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And how, how do you, I guess, how do you frame or how do you balance, a kind of I'll call it uh, traditional ceremonial use of psychedelics you know peyote ayahuasca psilocybin mushrooms you know in you know indigenous cultures right this stuff has been used for thousands if not tens of thousands of years and there's you know there's a certain thread there and now you kind of have this more clinical biotech kind of thread I mean how do you see this integrating playing out I mean, what's the future look like
2: yeah that's a great question I think that's that's really one of the key components of, of trying to figure out what this industry is going to look like and I think I'd add even a third category to that which you know hasn't really been explored too much historically but what what folks are calling the betterment of well people right and so I think that there's a lot of interesting research that psychedelics can really help to expand your consciousness help you to problem solve, think through solutions in ways that, you know, would have been unfathomable to you without the support of psychedelic medicines. Uh-huh. Um, and so really figuring out how all three of those will play together is going to be hypercritical. I think to your questions directly, you know, it's probably going to start with more of that psychedelic or sorry, with more of that clinical mental mm-hmm. health focus, you know, helping people with depression, anxiety, PTSD, and that's kind of going to ha- serve as really the initial use case. For it, and oh, no. then I think over time, again, as that stigma dissipates, as it becomes more readily available to folks, you know, like you're already seeing in Oregon, then I think you know the applications to more of that exploring your higher levels of consciousness, you know, the betterment of well, people will will, will tend to follow, and you know, on more of the um, shamanic and you know ancestral cultural type thing, I think we are already seeing progress with that. I, I believe that there's a couple of different. Uh, Native American, what have been deemed religions that are now able to legally use peyote, I suspect, hopefully, you know, ayahuasca will follow that path eventually. So, you know, we're, we're seeing progress on all these fronts, but it is going to be really interesting just to see how quickly they all come together, what the kind of lines of demarcation are between each of them. So I, I don't have a great answer for you today, but it'll be really exciting to see how it
1: evolves. yeah. yeah. And in terms of, I mean, you mentioned a couple of these states that um, have been passing some legislation, cities that have been passing legislation. What actually, ha- what have you been seeing that's, that's actually in place at this point? And what are the trends or what, what are the things people are kind of talking about? How, and how do you see the regulatory environment kind of evolving?
2: Yep. Yep. That's a great question. So, you know, it really started with a number of cities criminalizing psilocybin. So I think, mm-hmm. I think Portland, Oregon was first. Um, and yep. then you've got, you know, I know at least Denver, Santa Cruz, Washington, D.C. There's probably a couple others I'm missing. Oakland, I believe. Yep. And so that's all great. You know, obviously, having having uh, psilocybin be decriminalized, it, it helps a lot for folks know where to get the spores. You can now effectively grow it and consume it legally for yourself in those locations. Although, obviously, you know, not being able to purchase it legally and inherently creates a barrier there. But obviously, those states or those cities are moving in the right direction. Oregon, as folks probably know, back in November decriminalized all drugs and fully legalized psilocybin which are also (laughs) known as uh, psychedelic mushrooms for people who don't know and so that's really I think going to be the real big uh, case study that people are following. Still early days there so the the legislation in Oregon said that by January 2023 we will have the ability for folks not just who need it for call it you know mental health issues but it'll be Mm -hmm. available for everyone to purchase legally Um, Exactly what that's going to look like is going to evolve pretty dramatically, I'm sure, over the next 15 months. Mm -hmm. And so we're staying really close to that, you know, looking to understand what's going on in the Oregon market as that uh, will likely be very much of a uh, case study that other states will tend to follow as they start to legalize psilocybin going forward.
1: Yeah. And what do you see? I mean, I know in cannabis, we've gone through a couple of different cycles of kind of bottlenecks or constraints in the industry, you know, kind of uh, on the cultivation side, then some of the processing side and it kind of, you know, the the barriers or the bottlenecks kind of keep shifting a little bit. Where do you see kind of the structural challenges in the psychedelic industry? You know, as you kind of think through like how this is going to develop, where are the pinch points? Where are the opportunities? I guess, what analysis have you done so far? Yep. That's a great question, Bruce. I think two things I would highlight. So
2: number one, just like cannabis, I think will be licenses. Again, hard to say exactly what that's going to look like as, you know, Oregon's the first state to do it and and they're not to that point yet. But my assumption is that states will probably go more of the limited license route in psychedelics um, just because they're going to want to control the substances. You know, like we've talked about, they are very powerful. So I think, you know, we, we tend to see regulators start more cautious. And then as they prove it out, as they see the benefits as you know, they see that there's no increase in crime or what have you, then they tend to issue more and more licenses. And so I think, you know, not surprisingly, if you can be early in a state that's issuing a limited number of licenses, you're inherently going to have this kind of baked in supply demand arbitrage. So getting licenses in early states, especially, you know, ones that have limited licenses and have larger populations is naturally going to be a great place to
1: play. Yeah. I'm kind of curious how you see that playing out because in cannabis, we've got this, you know, sort of multifaceted model. In some cases, there's limited license, vertically integrated. In some cases, it's unlimited license, you know, or it's not vertically integrated, you know, that you can get licensed for different parts of the process. And then, you know, some of of them are limited, some of them are unlimited. How, what's your guess on how that's going to play out? Again, I don't want to be too leading. (laughs) No, I, it's, that's
2: a great question too. So, I think you know one of the things that's interesting about psychedelics as well is that we already have you know pretty efficacious, well well tested synthetic compounds, right? Like yeah. LSD. Yeah, exactly. And so, as you're probably familiar, in cannabis. There are a bunch of companies trying to make cannabinoids synthetically, which would dramatically reduce the input cost, the time to, you know, cultivate cannabis and, and cycles and, you know, pretty much reduce the need to, to grow indoors and all of that. Okay. So there's a huge opportunity there, but no one's really quite yet cracked that code. Whereas in psychedelics, it's possible that we could launch with a synthetic compound. Now that said, I don't think, uh, I don't think we will. I think people tend to want to focus on psilocybin first just because, you know, it's a plant medicine. LSD, I think, historically has just had such a bad rap because of Timothy Leary and and kind of some of the things that happened that I think that's going to come along later. And so my assumption is that we'll probably start the industry really focusing on psilocybin. Maybe MDMA will get there too with with some more clinical purposes. But I think the quote unquote recreational market will probably be shaped by psilocybin initially. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, that means, you know, you actually have to be able to grow it, you know, it just from a, from like a cultivation capacity perspective, that obviously takes more time than just synthesizing LSD in the lab, or yeah. more, more time and physical space to do so. And I'm certainly not, not an expert grower, but my understanding is that mushrooms are the easier to grow than cannabis, right? So I think that'll help from the perspective of it not being so capital intensive to, to start a new grow in cannabis like it is today.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly I'm, I'm- you know, I don't think we'll need the, you know, $100 million to, to build out a, a million f- square foot grow facility and, uh, you know, all the infrastructure and everything. I mean, it's it's a little more contained. And yeah, I think from a footprint point of view, it's it just kind of a density, probably in a, in a better situation on that side. I'm curious what, how do, I mean, I know a lot of folks are kind of using this ketamine, you know, which is, you know, schedule three right now. So it's available, prescribable, people are using it as kind of a um, pilot or at least a, a way of Exploring kind of these therapeutic models, and then with with some idea of bringing in psilocybin once it's legalized. I mean, how do you see those things? as an, an interesting or a viable solution or a viable kind of business strategy in terms of setting the groundwork and getting the clinics and stuff. What's your take on some of those plays?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's a place that I'd say we've spent more of our focus, you know, number one, just because with biotech, that's not our background as investors. And so we want to be careful not to get over our skis. And also in general, we, we view the uh, risk return profile of a lot of pure biotech plays as out of whack with what we're looking for in the sense that, you know, a lot of them just go straight to zero and then a few get lucky and completely knock it out of the park. Um, whereas we're looking for kind of more less, less high risk, you know, and, and we're willing to take less upside because of that. And so, for example, there's a group called Field Trip Health and that's doing some pretty interesting stuff where, you know, they are also doing some biotech stuff, but they the rest of their business model is focused on creating these clinics, working with ketamine today. And then already having the infrastructure and facilities up and running so that when psilocybin and other molecules are legalized, that they can use those. And I think that's a really interesting place to play. And actually, back to your question on bottlenecks, you know, one of the places where we expect there's going to be a huge bottleneck is for clinicians who can yeah. work with patients here. And so that that's a part of the supply chain that I think. And then back to the license question, too. You know, if you can get a license to actually run a clinic that can... Um, can uh, prescribe psilocybin. That's going to be really valuable. So I think that's probably one of the first places we'll look to make a move as we move into the psychedelics market.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always loved the case study of Soft Soap. I don't know if you remember that one, where they were looking at the uh, where the bottleneck was, and it was going to be the company that owned the tech and the IP for the dispenser for the little for the push down squeeze dispenser so they bought all of that they bought all the rights to that and then i think when procter and gamble bought soft soap or something like that they realized they were they were in a bind because they couldn't get enough when they started to scale they couldn't get enough of those things and that's that's where they just made a killing <laughs> so so they found their pinch point of the industry and they realized you know it was going to take a couple of years for anyone to repeat it and so they they got acquired from some stupid amount of money but yes yeah, so i'm curious like what i've been kind of trying to figure out is where where are those kind of opportunities in in, in the psychedelic industry and i think you you bring up a really good one which is the therapeutic side it's like how how do we find enough uh, trained clinicians you know and you know i'm already sort of kind of hearing or or you know people that are are chatting about various strategies of you know using ai and things like that like how can we augment these things and do you do group group experience you know group therapy rather than individual therapy so that you can scale that because yeah i think it, i think it's going to be challenging or, you're, or we're going to we're going to run into some of these and they may be surprising and the companies that can kind of get ahead of this and You know, position themselves well, either from an IP investment or an actual kind of capabilities and capacity resources point of view, could be quite interesting. Where where do you see, I mean, as you're kind of looking at the market and kind of um, uh, understanding what companies are doing, what are some of the interesting companies that you're kind of running into or that you're seeing out there that are, you know, positioning themselves well or doing good work or, or interesting work That's in the psychedelic space?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think I mentioned a tie earlier. It looks like, you know, we like, we like their business model as well because they're effectively, what they do is they provide a lot of the back office services that help psychedelic treatments get through the FDA approval process. So you kind of help to spread those super expensive operational costs across a bunch of different biotech businesses. And then in exchange, they take a uh, position of ownership in each of those underlying companies. So we almost view that as a way of like getting uh, diversified exposure to the biotech side. I mentioned field trip health, obviously like, uh, like the, um, clinical side of, uh, the, uh, of the industry, you know Compass Pathways is one that was interesting initially I mean you've probably seen some of the uh, some of the flack that that company has gotten yeah. as they've tried to you know patent psilocybin and, and so I think that's a really interesting space where we're going to see some of these traditional for profit businesses coming in and and operating like like capitalists uh, I guess I'll say it and that's naturally <laughs> yeah. going to start a backlash with a lot of the folks who have moved the psychedelics movement forward to this point where their top priority has really been on on mental health and expanding consciousness. So it'll be really interesting to see how that kind of duality of, of conflicting interests
1: plays out over the longer term. Yeah. And in terms of some of these, you know, you, you mentioned a few of these, the, the psilocybin, MDMA, what else do you see on kind of the the path here in terms of you know molecules uh, either lab or plant-based that you know kind of could prove interesting from a therapeutic and a kind of growth industry growth point of view
2: yeah yeah no it's a great question so i think psilocybin and MDMA may are definitely the furthest along just based on where they are in, in fda trials and the fact that they're just i'd say less uh less intensive experiences than some of the Mm -hmm. other psychedelics that, you know, get a lot of coverage as well, such as ayahuasca and DMT. And Mm -hmm. so I think just naturally kind of getting back to that more, more uh, phased in acceptance level, right? Like I think that the the lower potency type substances like psilocybin and MDMA will just, just naturally have more progress initially. And then, you know, it's hard to put any type of timeline on it. But I think as people start to see how efficacious these substances are, then they'll start to take other things like ayahuasca and DMT more seriously. I think LSD, I'd probably put in between those two kind of buckets. So I think that'll probably be one of the ones that follows relatively quickly after uh, psilocybin um, and MDMA. Yeah.
1: What does it take? I mean, you know, we're talking about clinical trials, FDA process. I mean, what's your kind of assumption or kind of working model for a company that's really going down the, um, you know, drug, drug development, biotech route? What are they going to have to raise? What kind of timeframes? I mean, when, when do these things actually, you know, get get to kind of viable market products that can actually start generating significant revenues?
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's the inherent issue. You've, you've hit the nail on the head with the question in terms of why that's that just a tough business model to get behind unless you're, you know, a, a venture capital fund that's probably specifically set up for that. Yeah. Um, and it's just because these FDA trials, I mean, they just move at a snail's pace They typically take, you know, several tens of millions to get through the entire process. And there's really no guarantee that they ever will. So it's, it's very much, uh, it's very much of a risky profile to back. And and in fact, you've seen a lot of traditional venture capital investors from Silicon Valley and, and not even talking about the fact that psychedelics are illegal today, but a lot of them have just historically decided to stop investing in biotech altogether to focus on more software plays just because that risk return profile on the biotech side is so tricky. And so thankfully, there are still a number of firms that are putting money behind biotech plays. And so you've seen like, uh, for example, Peter Thiel's fund, Founders Fund, Mm -hmm. backed both the tie and compass. So, you know, there are pockets of capital that can really put money behind these these types of businesses, but you need just a lot of money, you need a lot of time. If you're very lucky, you can get breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA, which a couple of these substances have received, thankfully. But even that you know I think it probably cuts out a couple of years of the process, but you know getting anything through in less than five years is probably a pipe dream,
1: yeah, yeah, it seems just really different can- cannabis was kind of like if i can if I can script together a million dollars, get a license st- set up a dispensary, like I'm kind of in business and can start making money, but I mean, out, Alex. i mean it's it, it, it seems like it's at at least several years <laughs> and 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 probably like you said tens if not potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of you know, investment and, you know, clinical trials and, and even then no, no real guarantee. So not, not for the pain of heart, but you know,
2: hopefully but, with yeah. Oregon coming online in
1: 2023, and
2: then I'm, I'm certain other States will soon follow as, as long as there's no major federal backlash against Oregon. And so, with that, hopefully, there will be other ways that folks who don't necessarily have that biotech expertise or you know the tens of or hundreds of millions of capital right. behind them that they need, uh, there will be other ways for them to play it. And so, uh, so as the industry matures, um, there's definitely going to be much more opportunities on that side on on the on the ancillary you know software and services side. So. There's there's going to be more opportunities for folks to get in, but it's again why I just caution folks that you know being too early can certainly be just as much of an issue as being too late. So just bide your time, get smart on the industry, figure out where your expertise really lies and where you can provide value
1: before you you
2: know start making a move too quickly.
1: Yeah, as an investor. I'm curious, like coming coming out of the cannabis space seems like a, you know, a very sort of logical, natural pivot, just, you know, in dealing with a kind of federally legal, all the, all the regulatory issues, like kind of, th- there's a lot of similarities there, but it, it also seems like you are potentially going again going up against some, some pretty big hitters <laughs> in terms of, you know, in, investors in, in drug development, um, you know, that are, you know, very familiar with, you know, that kind of investment horizon, you know, probably have, um, you know, the resources and the funds and stuff to the, the people that do those kind of things. Like, how do you see yourself competing as an investor in this space, g- given this kind of different uh, landscape? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Bruce. And that's, that's,
2: I'd say, the core reason why we haven't put any capital behind psychedelics quite yet is because most of the top opportunities we've seen are these types of biotech plays where we just don't have that expertise. We don't have the pockets of capital behind us to really yeah. be able to, you know, take a substance through,
1: you know, you got a hundred million dollars sitting in a, sitting at your desk. There. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not, not yet, unfortunately, but you know, if the cannabis keeps growing, eventually it'll get yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, though, we're just really looking to stay smart on the substance, you know, follow, follow some of the great research that's been done by folks like Michael Pollan and Make sure we're just staying ahead of that learning curve so that when the industry starts to open up and there's better ways that fit kind of our background and our capital stack that we can play those, you know, at at the appropriate time. And so that's kind of why I've like highlighted some of those opportunities with getting into early states and getting licenses early and focusing more on like the the clinician side of things than on the biotech side of things. I think that's really where we're going to look to play longer term.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And and where, where are you getting kind of your information insight these days? Any good sources, you know, online events, people like what's, what's the source for folks that want to really kind of familiarize themselves with uh, psychedelics?
2: Absolutely. I think the place I'd recommend people start if they're brand new to the subject would be Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was, so my, my first encounter with substance with psychedelics was in 2015. Just as, you know, kind of an, an exploratory adventure, but then yep. was reintroduced to the topic in 2018 when his book came out. And then he you know did a number of interviews on both Tim Ferriss's podcast both, and then Joe Rogan's podcast. Both of those guys have done a lot of great interviews with not just Michael, but uh, a number of other leaders in the industry. So Stanislav Grof, another great guy to, to follow. Rick Doblins over at Maps has been one of the, the leaders in the space who else? The folks at John Hopkins. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and any of these groups that have really been at the forefront of um, cutting edge research, I'd say is is a great place to start. And then, you know, I, I would recommend folks who are interested in trying the substances to look up how you can legally and safely get access to them and and have your own personal experiences, I think that's probably the best really way to familiarize yeah. yourself with the positive implications of what these substances can really do,
1: yeah, yeah, it's powerful stuff, really fascinating and enlightening, as we like to say that the medicine will tell you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear, so <laughs> you gotta you gotta be a little prepared, but it is fascinating it is fascinating. Jordan, if people want to find out more about you, more about Key Investment Partners, what's the best way to get that information?
2: Absolutely, yeah. They can uh, check us out on our website, keyinvestmentpartners.com. I can also be reached by email at jordan at dot com. So uh, always happy to talk shop about cannabis, psychedelics, whatever folks uh, are interested in.
1: Excellent. I'll make sure that your information and the URL and everything is in the show notes. And I'll also make sure that some of the references that you mentioned as well are in the show notes so people can click through get that information. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on.
2: I uh, really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast.